1: Episode 86 of The Bowery Boys, Boss Tweed, and Tammany Hall.
0: Hey, it's The Bowery Boys.
1: Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com.
0: Hello there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. And we are celebrating our second year anniversary with this episode. Tom, congratulations. Thank you. Congratulations to
1: you, Greg. I I,
0: I bought you this
1: $2 million diamond ring just for the occasion.
0: Well, how did you ever afford this expensive diamond ring?
1: With my lowly (laughs) podcast salary. (laughs) Well, we are not making a nonsensical joke. Well, it's a little bit nonsensical, but <laughs> uh, it relates to today's topic.
0: And it's uh, we thought we would celebrate a grand American tradition, the tradition of good old-fashioned em- corruption. And, and, and embezzlement. Um, and the king of that uh, in New York City politics, the notorious William Boss Tweed, and, of course, a little history of the political organization which sort of gave him his power, the democratic machine, Tammany Hall.
1: You know, in several past podcasts, Greg, I think we've, we've mentioned Boss Tweed. We talk about Tammany Hall, but we never really explain what Tammany Hall is. Is it a place? Is it a thing? It's a machine? But what's a machine?
0: We're going to break it down for you in this episode, tell you about some methods in which how they would influence the vote and get desirable candidates into public office including the office of the mayor. And then, of course, we're going to talk about the Tweed Ring, which was the group of men that basically swindled the city out of, in 21st century dollars, would be almost up to 3 to $4 billion.
1: And we're recording this just days after Bernard Madoff was sentenced to 150 years in prison, uh, so it seems strangely apt.
0: If there are any coincidental facts between that and, say, any state senate drama that also might mm. be happening to go on... Well, that's it's purely intentional. Of course. <laughs> so join us as we take a
1: walk through Tammany Hall. So before we get into the short history of Tammany Hall, maybe we can just clarify again that we're talking about William Marcy Tweed, who would be called the boss. Uh, This man was born in 1823 and died in 1878 he would become the most powerful force in new york city politics in the 19th century then we're also going to be talking about a few buildings that are still with us today like the so-called tweed courthouse behind city hall that is a wonderful and notorious example of the kind of graft that went on and the inflation of budgets and i guess we're going to talk as well about the actual building the hall there was
0: one right the real tammany hall well there was an actual tammany hall was in a saloon, and it was located really close to where City Hall is today, around where Pace University is, right where the entrance of the Brooklyn Bridge is. The, where Tammany Hall is during the course of this story is actually on 14th Street between 3rd and 4th Avenues. However, if you want to visit Tammany Hall today, you can actually go to where their last headquarters were, which is actually on Union Square at 17th Street and Park Avenue South, right off of Union Square. Today, it's, it holds the New York Film Academy, as well as an off-Broadway All theater. All right, yes. So, but you can still see the words Tammany Hall that are written sort of above the door. So there was a real hall, but of course, the power of these men would extend far beyond a mere few buildings, and would control New York City city politics as well as state politics.
1: But in the sense that it was a hall, it was a society, Tammany society.
0: Well, that's what's funny about it, is it started off very, almost campy, in an altruistic manner, actually. It was a sort of a social fraternity when it first started. It started in 1786. It was kind of a club for historical-minded men. Hmm. Um, it was actually formed in the honor of a Lenape Indian chief, or an Indian sachem, as they would have called them, named Tammany or Tammanund. This group originally formed in Philadelphia because Tammany was a leader of this tribe who had met with the English colonist William Penn in the 17th century and brought about the formation of Philadelphia. So they formed the group in Philadelphia, but a branch of it came to New York and eventually, of course, the New York branch would outlive the Philadelphia branch and would morph into something else entirely.
1: And they were like a gentleman's club? Or, it was,
0: I mean, the best way I can say it, like a rotary club, a male bonding organization, uh-huh, if you right. will. And it had businessmen, tradesmen, many wealthy New Yorkers, but from that particular class, from the merchant class, they really got into Tammany. They all had their own like Native American names. They used their own different style of calendar for parades they would dress up in wildly gaily colored costumes they had indian chants indian ceremonies um so this is the campy part you were oh well, yeah to. but i mean it's, you know, this sounds kind of fun i mean but they yeah, were very sounds- serious about it they even had a small museum actually. The Tammany Museum, and a remnant of this museum was actually later sold to P.T. Barnum, which then he would display in his own The American uh, Museum. The American Museum, correct. Uh Uh-huh. Now, given that these were, you know, men of a certain class, it's not surprising that it slowly gained a political purpose. And so this, it would become what we would call a machine, a political machine. Now, I'm going to take this definition right out of a book on Tammany Hall history that I read by Oliver Allen. He actually describes a machine Thusly, quote, a disciplined and tightly held central directorate capable of using a multitude of sophisticated election techniques to stay in power. Unquote. I feel like there's a little wink you need to yeah, do.
1: Sophisticated <laughs> election techniques. So is that kind of like vote early, vote often, uh, or ballot stuffing, <laughs> or just get your people out? It or? would
0: maybe start legitimately and then, of course, go into these more um, sinister methods, if you will. They were associated in the early 1800s. This is where it gets a little confusing. You may want to revisit the DeWitt Clinton podcast where we kind of explain this. It starts off basically supporting the Democratic-Republican Party. At that time, they called themselves the Republicans. Right. Within 30 years or so, the Republicans morph into today's Democrats. So basically, this is the origin of the modern Democratic Party, even though they don't really look much like our Democrats today. And they would incorporate and support a lot of major names that we know today. Um Aaron Burr was probably one of their biggest successes. He was never a Tammany member himself, but he was greatly supported by the Tammany men, especially because they hated the Alexander Hamilton-type federalists, of course. Now, through these men and through the decades of dozens of politicians, they actually had learned a lot of these very sophisticated techniques that they would actually perfect in the years of Tweed. Things like the spoils system, where once you get somebody elected, that person will then appoint all these Tammany men you know, to these various positions, they would organize into very small units within the ward, so that so that people would really feel like they were part of the system, and that they had an ability to be promoted into it as well. Which, of course, really came into play with the explosion of immigrants that came into New York. Tammany was actually a very anti-Catholic group, believe it or not, in its early days, very nativist. But then they... that re- would
1: change, right, with Boss Tweed and well, it, it would change. All the it would
0: change even before that at least maybe 20 years before Tweed came on the scene because they sort of realized, well, we can't really survive. And also, you have all these new votes just, like, pouring into the city. Why don't we just try to cater to their needs? By the middle of the 19th century, Tammany was basically calling the shots. In fact, you could look at the 19th century as being a, especially the mayor races, as being a battle between Tammany mayors and, quote, reform mayors, very anti-Tammany. Their greatest example was Fernandes. Wood, who we also talked about speaking of in that Union right. Square podcast. He was one of their most powerful mayors, but also this is an example of someone who almost gained so much power. You know, they installed him into place, but he basically just broke with them eventually and broke off and created his own group that was ultimately unsuccessful. But just as an example that shows how as much as Tammany can put people into place, they can also create these political monsters, if you will, that will rebel against Tammany. And so... so this, yeah.
1: speaking of monsters, then, I guess we could segue into the life of William Tweed?
0: Yes, we, we should, because I should mention, by the way, that Tweed was an alderman for the city during the mayoralty of... Oh, Wood. Of, of Wood. Right. So, and um, Wood
1: comes right back into the story. Right,
0: right. So uh, how, do, how did Tweed get it started?
1: Well... So you took us up through the middle of the 19th century. Let's back up a little to 1823, April 3rd, in fact, when little William Marcy Tweed was born on the Lower East Side of Manhattan over on Madison Street, just a couple blocks away from where we are right now. His father was a Scottish-Irish chairmaker, and they did a pretty good job. William was brought up in this family, a a hard-working kid, Mm -hmm. um, in his dad's chair factory as an apprentice, learn the trade and as a young man developed it all indicators were that William Tweed was going to become the next great chair factory man <laughs> and he would go on to run his own chair factory with his brother in fact so he was firmly seated, if you would. <laughs> well, he would.
0: He would be seated at a lot of powerful tables later. So Yes, he would.
1: He didn't really care for books so much. He loved reading the newspaper. Uh, books bored him, but a newspaper allowed him to see how power worked in the city. And he really loved the shenanigans, like you said, of political uh, brinksmanship happening in the
0: city. So he loved current affairs, not so much the book learning.
1: Correct. The man himself, even as a child, he was a Big kid, and as he got older, he got even more imposing. Shall we say he he weighed about three hundred pounds as a White man, girth, yes. Dressed in a black suit, an imposing uh, figure with bright blue eyes and a big hearty laugh. He appealed to men because he was the kind who would come up slap you on the back, jovial, loud, funny. Always cracking jokes, but he could turn on people if you got on the wrong side of him, and you didn't want to be on that side of him. Women loved him too. There was something about him, or at least he loved women and had several mistresses.
0: Power is attractive. And,
1: Greg, he was something of a dandy. He dressed to the nines. Once he attained a certain amount of power, he started flaunting his wealth. He had a 101 carat diamond pinned to his suit front. He was wearing jewels. He was bejeweled in a major way. That's
0: very bold of him, actually.
1: Right. And also, if you examined where this money was coming from if you took an objective stance on it and said wait a second, this guy is running a chair factory, which, by the way, by 1861 had gone bankrupt, okay? And then he took various positions uh, through Tammany Hall, various political positions that didn't pay very much because if we just looked at the official salaries, he'd be making, you know, $1,500 a year, $2,000 a year. Yet he would go from this modest house on the Lower East Side to eventually a mansion in Midtown. So how
0: exactly did he get into, Tammany Hall. and gets so powerful. Well, like with all great
1: political stories, Greg, it starts with the fire department.
0: Were some of his chairs on fire? I'm not sure.
1: Seriously, though, the the volunteer fire department at this period, in the mid-19th century, as we've discussed, I think, in the Five Points episode, were very powerful social organizations.
0: Um, Yeah, each neighborhood had their own sort of rival unit. Sometimes they would even compete to put out a fire. Sometimes they would block the other from putting out a fire. This fights around the uh, hydrant you right.
1: know. So in 1949, he became the chairman of the number six fire company as the leader of this volunteer fire company would acquire a double-decker fire engine and a new station on Henry Street. And this gave him a certain amount of celebrity in the neighborhood in the 7th Ward and got him noticed by Tammany Hall. He was awarded in 1852 with a position as an alderman for the 7th Ward, which is like today's city council. Mm -hmm. And the next year, then he was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives in so, D.C. So he moved from the Lower East Side to D.C.
0: Wow, it's weird to think of him as being a national politician, but it didn't wor- work out for him that well. He didn't, it...
1: no, he didn't like it. He was completely bored to tears. He even said, you know, if I can just read a quote, he complained that he had to, quote, spend my time in hearing a lot of snoozers discuss the tariff and the particulars of a contract to carry the mail from Paducah to Skahari. He
0: was <laughs> Bored. Well, he but, was bored. But also he would see the value later of being the man behind the scenes. And he would only take elective office when he thought it would further his own goals, sometimes right. some of these more sinister goals.
1: So he didn't last long. He took the Acela back up to D.C. <laughs> but seriously, no, he came right back after one term and was really happy to be back in New York. Soon after then, things get really interesting because he really gets to sink his teeth into Tammany Hall and has a variety of positions. In 1867 and 1870, he serves in the New York Senate, a deputy street commissioner from from 1863 to 1870, and the commissioner of public works in 1870. I mentioned 1870 in all three of these he held th- these three positions at the same time, which seems so unbelievable.
0: Well, he took the Senate job. Well, I'll explain a little bit later. But he took the Senate job basically so that he could control Albany so that they wouldn't meddle in his own affairs down in the city.
1: Right. But it just seems like we have protections against this sort of thing today. And maybe it's because of boss Tweed that we do, <laughs> we, hmm, as a matter I of fact. I think so. <laughs> he attained a lot of power, and became then the Grand Sachem uh, of Tammany Hall, or the boss. He was unanimously elected to be its highest leader. And he would hold on to that position until the downfall of the ring and until his prosecution. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery Plus.
0: Now, we're about about to the year 1869. Um, Okay. So I'm going to describe who the Tweed Ring is because specifically a small group of officials in the city government who basically are controlling this huge network of embezzlement and bribery but it's centered around four men and did One, they
1: call themselves the ring
0: it was officially just a board within the city government of a, a very innocuous sounding board but the newspapers would later call it the tweed ring mm-hmm. um now of course boss tweed being the head of the ring he couldn't have this power without having them without having the mayor in his back pocket the mayor at the time was a man named Abraham Hall or A. Hall. They called him Elegant Oki because he was very flamboyant and very witty and very, very charming and thin. And thin. It's
1: just the the age (laughs) of the dandy.
0: He was always telling jokes. One of New York's most colorful mares. As a matter of fact, it's sometimes literally colorful. On St. Patty's Day, he would wear all green suits. And he was an excellent front for the ring because everyone really liked him. Um, You also had Peter Sweeney, who was the city chamberlain, and would later become a parks commissioner for the city. He was considered the brains of the outfit. He would manage some of the bank accounts And finally, the fourth member would be Richard B. Connolly, also named Slippery Dick Connolly, who would be the city comptroller. Now, in addition to these four men, Tweed would have a number of judges in his pocket, including one George Barnard, who would do all sorts of like favors for Tweed and, of course, would get compensated for them nicely. He even made Tweed a licensed attorney, even though Tweed had no law background whatsoever to speak of. Albert Cordozo, he was also a judge. That was in the back pocket of, uh, of Tweed. Now, his son, Benjamin Cardozo, would sort of save the family name right. because he would be a very influential Supreme Court justice for the U.S. Supreme Court.
1: But Daddy, Daddy Cardozo, was uh, a different story.
0: And basically, any city contractor who wanted to do business was also implicated into all these crimes – as a matter of fact tweed wouldn't even do business with you if you were somewhat honest because you know he wanted people who would play by tweed's rules and who would practice this honest graft which he would describe as basically quote i seen my opportunities and i took them like that's what how he describes <laughs> his honest graft basically he creates this elaborate scam that embezzles millions of dollars. So so this is essentially how it worked. I mean it's like it's it's very elaborate but I'm going to like try to summarize it here in less than 5 minutes and take as an example the building of the New York County Courthouse, the Tweed Courthouse, which started in 1861 but would take Twenty years, mm. twenty years to construct. To put that in perspective, the it's Brooklyn the Brooklyn Bridge took thirteen years. Right. Tweed had his hand in the Brooklyn Bridge here too, but we won't talk about that right now. Um, the the Tweed Courthouse was actually designed by this man named John Ketchum, who actually designed a version of the New York stock exchange but this took so long to build that the he died and another architect had to come in and finish the job
1: and i believe that the state legislature had passed a spending bill on this the state legislature had granted two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to be spent on the construction of this courthouse so it,
0: it was the cost of this would balloon and from so for, from this quarter of a million dollars to twelve million dollars for a building that's like—I mean—it's a nice building. So that's forty-eight times, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, something around cost, there, I yeah. think. So this is how—this well, is how it would happen. It would be in the form of these massive overestimations of payments to the contractors. That the contractors would build the city, and it would just be this inflated, these inflated amounts because it would include within that the kickbacks. Uh To the tweed ring.
1: So then eventually the
0: contractors
1: could get back their original price.
0: Yes, yes. The bills would include this money for the ring members, which they would split up in a certain manner. But the contractors would get back the original money. And, of course, they would be doing sort of substandard work, so they would have to go back and repair it. So they were always working on these buildings, and nothing was really getting done very quickly. And so the costs were just ludicrous. For instance, according to some of the totals that came out later, it cost, in 19th century dollars, mm-hmm. in a 1870 dollars, whatever, It would cost half a million dollars just to plaster the whole building. In fact, the New York Times later would call the contractor here the Prince of Plasterers because it was just like, wow, you're spending that much money? It would cost $1.5 million for the plumbing. The furniture alone for the whole building, $5.6 million just for furniture. So these are loony sums. Completely. completely. $41,000 for brooms. I mean, just these... Oh, wow, num- that's a lot of sweeping. These, are, these numbers are completely divorced from reality. Now, how on earth, how could they possibly get all of this through and have no, no, yeah, anyone know it seems notice? like there'd
1: be, you know, somebody who would see a bill for $41,000 worth of brooms and, you know, some red
0: flags would go up.
1: Well, Tweet
0: insulated the whole situation. Now, first of all, as we mentioned, he himself was in Albany as a state senator, and he would spend his entire day going from off office to office bribing Democrats and Republicans alike to make sure that they did not meddle in his business and that they would in fact pass certain issues that would actually be favorable for him to continue this business. Mm -hmm.
1: And we should also note that Albany had passed, you know, a little bit wary of New York's ability to rule itself. And this was even before Tweed got on the scene. There was a, a board, an oversight board of three Republicans and three Democrats that were appointed by the state to look out over the city politics and make sure that everything was above board. Well, Tweed was on this board. <laughs> and w- once he got on the board, he also made sure that at least one of the Republicans wasn't showing up. Yes. Somehow he so make so sure. Ridiculous.
0: So, so ridiculous. So that the Democrats would always have the majority. And the governor himself had been planted there by Tammany Hall and Tweed. John Hoffman, who had been the mayor of New York, then ascended to the role of governor. And that that's when Aoki Hall became mayor of New York. So they were all connected. They were all Tammany men. Of course, like through the spoil system, of course, many men then within city government were also were Tammany men and were tweed cronies. They even called them the shiny hat brigade because they all were. were they all. Well, were, I
1: think we saw in the pride parade on Sunday.
0: <laughs> yes, those tall little shiny hats that would reflect the sun nicely. Those were the trend <laughs> at the time. The police were in the back pockets, but then almost most shockingly, is that the people themselves actually all really liked Tweed, especially immigrants, especially Irish immigrants, because what Tweed would do is he would reach a hand into the community and he would give them handouts. Um, it would give a pittance to or- to orphanages and social organizations. So it's like he was giving to them with one hand and taking from them with the other. And he made them actually so content that at one point they even considered building a statue to William Tweed um, here in the Lower East Side, very near to where he was born. Um, he later said, oh, you don't build statues to living people.
1: But if you're going to build it, I know a contractor you should use. <laughs> <laughs> I but mean, when you say that he was taking from the poor people, I guess this is kind of a nuanced point because yeah, many is. of them weren't giving him money. But I, I guess the city taxes were going, of course, into his mansion and into his well, diamonds. Well, he
0: was stealing from the city budget. But the thing is, is that money could have been used for you know civic services and sure. for civic uh, projects, and eventually all of this ridiculous graft and embezzlement would. Uh, would put the city in the hole really deeply. Right.
1: And because he couldn't actually print his own money, <laughs> he kept issuing municipal bonds too. The city kept restructuring
0: its its finances. Now, some people did take notice, even some people in at Tammany Hall tried to revolt because they really saw this as just being the city was going to be destroyed, but he would squash this revolt. However, there is a series of events that do happen that, of course, brings down Tweed and brings down this entire thing, but this dissent actually starts in a very surprising way it starts with doesn't it with the cartoonist it starts with a cartoonist
1: named Thomas Nast who was German born and 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 worked for Harper's magazine but we should just ask the question quickly about the press, why hadn't the press said anything? I mean, it seems surprising to us today that the press would be so complacent throughout all of this. I mean, if a bill came for, you know, $300,000 worth of chalk or something, you know, people would yeah. be laughing. It would be exposed, we would hope, today.
0: I can only assume it's because of tweet owned or somehow controlled these other things, he must have controlled some members of the media. Of
1: course, because they were also, you know, the city was also one of the biggest advertisers selecting which papers would get their ads, also how they would curry favor with different editors and newspaper owners, giving access, but also just money and bribes. And at the New York Times, in fact, there was a man named James Taylor. James Taylor. Right, who ran the Times with Carly Simon. and (laughs) No, no. Who, You're so vain. <laughs> James Taylor was in the Tweed racket. He was also one of the three publishers of the Times. So the Times didn't attack Tweed, and when they did, it was, it was really discreet. So back to Thomas Nast in Harper's Magazine. On De- December 24th, 1869, they published a cartoon that he had done, showing Tweed in a suit, rotund, breaking into a box onto which taxpayers' and tenants' hard cash had been written. Which was really, shall we say, indiscreet.
0: (laughs) That was a rather indicting illustration.
1: Right. And the next year, September of 1870, Lewis Jennings, who was the managing editor, after this uh, James Taylor had died off and left the Times, a new guy, George Jones, came on board. Jones was actually not afraid to take on Tweed. And his managing editor, Lewis Jennings, wrote an editorial calling Tweed, quote, Tweed the first and writing ten years ago this monarch was pursuing the humble occupation of chairmaker in an obscure street in the city He now rules the state as Napoleon ruled France, or as the Medici ruled Florence. So the papers were off, and Nast continued publishing these incriminating illustrations, much to Tweed's dismay. He was not happy about this. He, in fact, stated that, look, his people don't know how to read, so the editorials don't really bother him, but they do know how to read pictures.
0: How did Tweed try to combat this? I mean, certainly he had some tricks up his sleeve, didn't he?
1: Well, his tricks. I mean, the same old tricks at any... Bully would use. He he threatened Thomas Nast. They started spreading rumors that he was actually a coward who had fled Germany uh, to escape military duty when after all he had left when he was six years old. They even tried to bribe him, correct? Who didn't they try to bribe? (laughs) I mean, over at the Times, you know, they tried everything on the Times. He threatened to kill George Jones, the editor, with his own hands. He then tried to buy the Times, but Jones wouldn't sell, so then Connolly offered them five million dollars to drop the whole thing. Still didn't work. Which didn't take. But just to pause for a second here, because we're in the middle of all of these attacks, but how Mm -hmm. did the... All of a sudden gets so forceful And what what was it that sort of broke the back of Tweed And made him vulnerable And that would be the publication of incriminating evidence Finally, finally the Times had proof in their hands They had a second and a third copy of the incriminating books That the county auditor, Jimmy Watson Had been keeping in 1871
0: And now this came to light because of a sleigh accident, correct? <laughs>
1: which is like the most random detail perhaps <laughs> in the whole in the whole podcast but yes the county auditor Jimmy Watson who was really like the bookkeeper and the bill payer for Tweed had been s- on a sleigh at 130th Street and 8th Avenue in January of 1871, had an accident and would end up dying. Now, Watson—
0: So he was slain in a sleigh accident, like yes. snow sleigh, like with yes. horses drawn sleigh. Like okay. jingle bells. Yes, okay.
1: Now, when he was replaced, it's a bit of a complicated story, but let's just say— it turns into his replacement blackmailing Tweed because he wanted to get more money, a higher percentage. Like you were saying before, they had different cuts of the pie. Mm-hmm. Tweed rebuffing him and his cohort, a man by the name of James O'Brien, asking Tweed for $350,000 to keep it all quiet because they had second copy of the books. mm mm-hmm. When Tweed rebuffed that offer, the various blackmailers ran off to the New York Times. And Jennings, the editor, was more than happy to take on the various copies of the books, especially because these two copies of the books corroborated each other. He had
0: his proof. I, I love the fact that they didn't run them all at once, they ran them right. every day. Like, you know, uh, they to... were going to make some money off of this. Exactly. And then they ended up even publishing just these accounts in little booklets. And they would even do like English and German versions. So that just so uh, some of these new immigrants who are coming over could also see some of the things that were these backhanded things that were happening.
1: They started publishing this July 8th of 1871. And as you say, they printed day after day. And the evidence just started building up to the point where people felt empowered now to speak openly and to write about the scandalous activities happening at City Hall. Mm hmm. So all of this culminated into a giant meeting at the Great Hall at Cooper Union on September 4th, 1871, called the Committee of Seventy. And this was a collection of New York's most powerful and prominent men from all fields, also legal and
0: banking. Men who weren't in the pocket of tweed, I'm assuming.
1: Right. But perhaps some of them had dabbled, danced around the pockets as they needed to get certain projects pushed through. Their focus was on answering the central question of how can you prosecute? this ring when they own all the power
0: good question
1: and they chose samuel tilden the great politician to be the leader
0: he would eventually he would take what he would do here with the tweed ring and carry it all the way to the governorship and almost to the white house
1: right and he so he led this investigation planning the prosecution of the tweed ring he chose foley a john foley to be the lead prosecutor three days later Foley obtained an injunction preventing the boss and the entire ring from spending any more of the city's money what's amazing is that this injunction was issued by judge barnard
0: well yeah so then The rat starts leaving the ship. Barnard happens to be the first one, I guess, trying to save his own skin. But eventually, Connolly himself, of the Tweed Ring, eventually goes to Tilden and tries to make a deal. He
1: he threw himself at his feet asking for mercy. And on September 11th, 1871, just a couple days later, wouldn't you know it, that somebody broke into Connolly's office and grabbed 3,500 files and threw them in the fire.
0: Were they successful in hiding information? I'm assuming
1: not. Well, those went up in smoke, but wouldn't you know it, there were copies of those records as well. do Mayor Hall reportedly became so distressed that he started pulling out his hair. One month later, October 27th, Tweed was arrested in his office at the Department of Public Works, uh, he paid his $5,000 bail and was given 20 days to answer the question of what happened to more than $6 million. But
0: during this entire time, he
1: still managed to run for state Senate and win.
0: Yes, he never got to sit in Albany again, but he did get elected. It shows even in his own ward, he was still very popular.
1: So then there were three trials of Boss Tweed. The first one in January of 73, after he got a year of delays you know, and bribes, paid people to just push back the dates and everything, Um, it ended up in a hung jury. The second trial had 15 new counts brought against Boss Tweed, including forgery, conspiracy, larceny, misdemeanor. He was proven guilty on four counts and sentenced to 12 years out in Blackwell's Island at the penitentiary.
0: Now, he would serve there for a little over a year, and then actually the whole thing would be overturned because it would be successfully appealed that his term was a little too excessive for the crime and for a man of his age, right?
1: Well, and these were actually 12 single term sentences, yes. which is kind of bizarre. And I think so after he served one of these one-year terms, mm-hmm. then it was appealed and the case was thrown out. But did he go free?
0: It's funny because he was at the in the tombs. He was in all the jails in right. New York. He was in the tombs for a while. Then he was in Blackwell Island. Then when he was appealed, then he had to face a civil case uh, that he lost. And so then he was thrown into the Ludlow Street Jail. Now that's at Essex and Ludlow. That's a little bit below Delancey. Where Seward Park High School is? Yes, today. it's a big school today. Now, by the way, you might be asking, well, what about the other people, the Tweed Ring? In fact, William Tweed was one of the only people really prosecuted for any crimes related to all of this scandal. Connolly, for instance, he fled to Europe and never returned. Sweeney went to Canada. Now, these their pockets were lined with money. Also, keep that in mind. They they basically took the money and ran. Wow. Mayor Oki Hall actually like, played out his entire term. Bought then- a new green suit bought a new green suit, planned his entire term. They There were three separate trials, but he was never convicted. Uh, he actually had a sort of successful post-mayoral career. He even managed a theater and launched a, a play that he starred in himself. Um, He would return to journalism. He was a dandy, he wasn't he? Was, yes. I mean, he was, again, he was, in every sense of the word, colorful. But meanwhile, Tweed was in the Ludlow Jail. Though it sounds like he had kind of a light sentence, doesn't it? Well, he was able to get a lot of visitors he was able, able to leave and visit family members so have such... dinner with his wife every night so so it was in december of 1875 when he would go uptown to have dinner with his family and he would excuse himself to go upstairs and in fact would escape from the mansion he had planned the whole thing out he had a getaway carriage right there, <laughs> just ready to go. Yeah, so then he would he would escape to New Jersey. In fact, he would be hiding out in Weehawken, kind of close to where the uh, Lincoln Tunnel is in New Jersey. He would eventually escape to a fishing hut in Staten Island, then would take a boat down to Florida, hide out in a lighthouse for a little bit, then go off the coast of Cuba. Like, this is an, an, a romantic adventure. Did people know who he was? He would be in a disguise, and he would t- take on a different name. Also, keep in mind, he's very... He's very sick, also, because mm. of just all of this traveling and all of the stress. He's losing weight, he's very pale, but he's wearing a disguise, also, and he's going by a diff- different name. It just seems like somebody would recognize him. They would, but because, because this is what he knows how to do best, he would pay bribes left and right to uh-huh. people throughout his whole journey. He would pay up to $60,000 in bribes, as a matter of fact. He eventually made his way to Europe. He took a boat called the Carmen, and for 42 days would sail the the Atlantic to get to Spain. However, the authorities were waiting for him in Spain. Unfortunately for him, they captured him there, shipped him back to New York. So he, threw him back into the Ludlow Street Jail. Now, because of this sort of romantic adventure, he was endeared a little bit in the public side. People would come by and shake his hand. And also, it just seemed unfair to a lot of people that no one else was convicted of any crimes except for Mr. Tweed. And just because he was a poor, pathetic old man by this time, eventually he even died in prison. So he died here in the Lower East Side, just less than a mile from where he was born on April 12th, 1878. Tammany Hall was really damaged by this, as you can imagine. But the remarkable thing is that they were able to regenerate with you know, with the thousands and thousands and millions of people that came to the city over the coming decades. They were able to rejuvenate and regain, reclaim some of their power, especially with some new grand sachems of the uh, leaders of Tammany Hall, such as Honest John Kelly and the very influential boss Richard Croker. And of course, some of the ma- manipulation of many of the Tammany members, such as the one named Big Tim Sullivan, they would still have their hands in all sorts of corruption and in all sorts of illicit activities, but Tammany Hall would continue to be a very powerful source. They would lose a little bit of their luster in the 1930s with the election of Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia, who was sort of the ultimate in reform mayors. But Tammany- Who was
1: not, we should just be clear, part of Tammany Hall.
0: Not, he was the ultimate reform mayor. basically. He really neutered Tammany Hall. And so, but they kept going, believe it or not, until the mid 1960s when they finally sort of like were wiped out of existence. But it's incredible to think that even some politicians that we know today here in New York and in in national politics, maybe got their feet wet a little bit in the early days with Tammany Hall. Mm. So that is our epic drama of Boss Tweed and a little bit about Tammany Hall I want to have some of these extraordinary Thomas Nast illustrations up on the blog BoweryBoysPodcast.com Greg is brave enough to put them up I know (laughs) well maybe I've been bribed (laughs) maybe I'm I'm guilty of a little honest graft thank you for joining us today I'll be back in a couple weeks with a solo episode thank you very much for listening have a great New York week whether you live here or not see you real soon